This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for August 8th, 2019, the Moscow Mitch edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I am in Slate's lavish lavish baffled <laughs> new york studio i'm here with a guest host mike pesca of the gist hello mike but i'm always in the studio is the thing you are do you, you spend all door. of your time in the studio yeah and i wake up like a harry potter character who is actually connected to the room uh i was the thinking basilisk, i was thinking on uh as i was on my subway over here that has anyone recorded more podcast episodes than you mike pesca and i think you must be in the top 10 of of podcast episodes recorded by of anybody in the world not just slate not just slate no No, i'll name so me and my friends at the baseball podcast effectively wild are in a neck and neck race for most episodes ever but my friend luke burbank is on episode like twenty thousand or something what are you on of his show too beautiful to live 12 15 i don't know it's up there 15 no, 15, sorry. 1,500, I Yeah, hope. I think so, 1,500. All right. Okay, orders that, of magnitude off. That, if you want orders of magnitude off, listen to the gist. It's <laughs> the gist. It's, it's sort of the, within a factor of 10. Right. Uh, that voice you didn't hear, your voice that you barely heard, that silent voice, uninterested in the number of episodes, is Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University. She as, is at uh, a studio in New Haven, Connecticut, her home city. Hello, Emily. Hello, hello. Uh, Mike, uh, Mike is here because John is on vacation. He is in in um, he's in Europe. He's in the EU. He's uh, preventing Brexit while he's over there, but he'll be back <laughs> in a couple of weeks. <laughs> he's the hard backstop, right? <laughs> on today's Gabfest, there were mass killings this past week in El Paso, Texas, and Dayton, Ohio, just hours apart. A week after, there was a mass shooting in Gilroy, California at the Garlic Festival. In at least two of these cases, the murders were carried out by white nationalist, white supremacists with a racist agenda, concerned, concerned, that's a ridiculous word, paranoid about immigration and a supposed invasion of immigrants. The El Paso Killers manifesto echoed the manifesto of the Christchurch New Zealand killer earlier this year. We've been talking a lot in the past decade about lone wolves, people who act alone in their horrible crimes. But this is this is not a lone wolf. This is clearly some kind of infection, some kind of collective infection. So what is the collective infection, Mike? Well, I think the collective infection is guns because of the non uh, of the non white supremacist killers, of which the Dayton killer was one, and then lists of hundred of them. Most aren't, and some of them are Muslim uh, extremists, and some of them are just angry people in the workplace. And it's very hard to root out a mental illness or an ideology. It's very hard. It's impossible. You can't do that. We should do that, but with our current president, we can't do that. And I also think that the FBI is looking at that. 
that, though we can debate, you know, maybe there are some FBI agents who, you know, tell reporters off the record that given the current administration, they don't feel fully empowered to go after them. And it's extremely concerning, the message that comes from the top. But if what we really want to do is lower the death toll, I don't know what we could do about the message from the top. I don't know. I, In fact, I'm Almost 100% sure if you shut down 8chan, they'll go to 16chan. Remember, the Tree of Life synagogue wasn't about 8chan. It was about Gab. So there are all these festering cesspools of hate. But since the the proximate cause of these people dying is all the rounds came from the muzzle of a gun, let us talk about the guns. And I think, unlike the ideology, there's a little movement on that. So I'm a little bit, not optimistic, but less pessimistic than sometimes I am after these horrors. Emily, do you agree with Mike that this is a this is a gun issue, not an ideology issue, or that they, that's a separable thing? I don't think Mike's saying it's one or the other. I think he's being practical about where he sees the most hope for addressing this. I mean, it is true that this kind of violence comes about from various motivations. At the same time, there are moments in political history where people who are prone to this kind of violence, choose particular targets based on, like, what's happening in the um, public conversation. And I think it seems so clear when you look at this manifesto that Donald Trump's rhetoric has permitted a kind of anger and violent recrimination against immigrants, xenophobia, racism, that the president's contributing to all of this. And I don't want to give up on the idea that he could stop doing that because you don't have to be putting out 2,000 Facebook ads talking about immigration as an invasion. You don't have to be talking in these racist terms about brown and black people. So I feel like that is an important thing to also demand and push for. But, of course, when you look internationally at our level of mass shootings in this country versus other countries, it does seem like guns are the distinguishing factor. And so I see, Mike, the movement on this whole idea of, like, making it the, – the red flag bills, making it easier for the police to take guns away from people who have been flagged as potentially dangerous. But, of course, that means they have to be on someone's radar. And I wonder what other kinds of gun regulations you see as being the most effective. Like, if we really had some political possibility here, what would – given how many guns are already are in this country, what would you do? But- Sorry, I, I just want to argue with both of you guys, which is, look, I, I would love to live in a in a country where a, a comprehensive and reasonable set of gun regulations from background checks, assault weapon bans, uh, red flag legislation, bans on certain kinds of ammunition, bans on certain kinds of uh, magazines were very easy to pass. You know, uh, gun buyback programs where you take a ton of guns off the street. To me, talking about those as though that is the the real thing we can deal with seems to me completely to missing the point. There's a new factor, which is actually a factor you can address, which is the rhetoric and and spread of messages around white supremacy, white nationalism, the violence of the president's rhetoric, which is a which is new and which which almost nobody in polite society approves of, as opposed to guns, which lots of people do approve of, and lots of people. Uh, you know, want to protect their their particular gun rights. And why not? I, I think you guys, to, to focus on the idea of guns as the thing to go after now seems to me to completely miss the point that, like, there's an incredibly poisonous new 
new way of talking in American life and online that has that has demented millions of young white men primarily. And that's what we have to attack. Well, 42 percent of polite society or at least American society do approve because that's Trump's approval rating. Maybe they don't approve of his They do level. not approve. They do not approve of this particular form of of. But if you approve of violent. Trump, you, if you approve of Trump, you countenance the You're source of the rhetoric. You're giving some of it a pass, but so, you're not. You're not. You don't. So, I don't think. Right. I don't think the, that most of those forty-two percent actually think. Oh, it's okay to then go murder people I, I in Walmart Donald, parking lot. Donald lots. Trump literally well, doesn't either, but he won't stop talking like that. So my point is, if you want to give them the moral out or the moral pass for supporting the guy who says that, that's fine. I'm sure every member of the Trump administration would give themselves that pass too. But my point is, there is something we could do about this horrible vector of hate coming from the top, and that is called an election. But it seems it's almost an odd thing that we've had this intractable problem in America for years and years and years, uh, which is the gun problem. And yet the impossible thing right now, I assess it is more impossible to get the president to stop talking like this, to stop saying these things than it is to pass these bans that have never been able to work. And just a couple factors to cite about why I think more about guns than the impossibility of getting Donald Trump to change his tune is that one, um, Marie Le Pen riles up passions. Gerd Wilders while, uh, riles up passions. There are radicals all ac- across the world and people all across the world who are extremely impassioned. But if they don't have access to guns, people don't die. People get upset. Uh, policies change, but people don't die in the flash of a muscle. And the second thing is, it's not just the white hatred that is killing people. It's other online communities like the stupid incel community that's killing people. And you know what? To me, this is a symptom of how we communicate now and how people who are lost, never had connection, find connections and find passion. And that goes beyond anything Donald Trump is saying. So like they're both they both have an extremely small percent chance of ever changing, but right now the progress is on the gun front because I do see a little bit more willingness and a change in the politics and I see no change in anything Donald Trump says or thinks. I just want to go back to my question about which gun regulations are both politically possible and would have the biggest effect. Because I actually don't feel like that's super obvious. And Mike, it sounds like you have a good sense of that, of what you think about that. Well, I think... I think you're right. The red flag laws are something. But as you know, in Connecticut, they had them on the books and they wouldn't have stopped the Sandy Hook shooter because someone has to be adjudicated mentally ill or a red flag has to be raised in the first place. Eli Saslow, you know him from the Washington Post. The guy's a great yep. writer. Two years ago, he wrote a profile of uh, an elderly, possibly suicidal guy with tons and tons of guns. And they raised the red flag and I don't want to ruin it, but it's a great story and it shows you how hard it is. OK, so I think Cory Booker's gun uh, licensing regime Almost certainly will not pass, but would very much help. But the and biggest what is thing that? Can is you talk about that a little bit. Well, yes. Um, the best thing to do for America is essentially to transpose New York City's gun laws onto the country as a whole. Impossible. But New York City, let's just be clear, has a homicide rate of about three and the country as a whole has a homicide rate closer to four. So what I'm saying is if you're randomly walking around New York City, you have less of a chance of being gunned down than just a randomly selected place in America. And the reason is you have to register your guns, not just license. You have to register your guns. Most places won't go for that. There are 
three states where you have to license some or all guns, um, Illinois, Massachusetts, and New York. That helps. When Connecticut passed gun licensing laws for lots of their guns, and when Missouri passed a law going the opposite direction, you so starkly see, and Jonathan Metzl writes about this in Dying of Whiteness, you so starkly see the states going in opposite directions. I don't know if that's about mass killings. In fact, it's mostly about suicide, but it's still about gun deaths. The last thing I'll say is, I don't know if this is possible. It failed 40 to 60 the last time it was brought up after Sandy Hook. And by the way, Michael Bennett running for president was in the 60 who voted against it. Assault weapons ban. The assault weapons ban is said to have not worked if you judge it against bringing crime down in general. But if you look at mass slaughters, which is why we're talking about this segment, right? We're not talking about it because one guy was shot in Brownsville, Brooklyn, and 13 people were wounded. We're talking about these society gripping mass slaughters. During the assault weapons ban, there was one mass slaughter of over 10 people, and that was Columbine. And since then, there's been 13. And that's not the only stat you need to know, but absolutely uh, addressing assault weapons, addressing AR-15 style weapons, which allow you to shoot so much faster. The Dayton killer was was brought down within 30 seconds. If he wasn't able to get off 41 shots in 30 seconds, there'd probably be fewer than nine people dead. I mean, I look, it would be, I think go, going after suicide is a great thing to do. I think then the red flag laws... Uh, may have some effect on that. That's a, that's a that's a space where where there may actually be a, a real benefit. I and, and if you are saying let's do this at a state by state level, I hear you. Like if we can get this done in 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 Illinois, in Maryland, in Virginia, and in neighboring states is really important. Uh, then that's then that's wonderful. I think the idea that this is a this is something which at a federal level, which at a national level is realistic is just crazy and is a is going to just disappoint everyone and that there are contra that there are things to do around rhetoric around the isolation of people i think what you were getting at earlier which with the when you talk about incels when you talk about the kind of misogyny that seems to run through so many of these mass killers when you talk about the racism that seems to to be this kind of blossoming infection that that is actually an area where you can not only, you know, possibly reduce violence, you can just make people less isolated, less bitter, less alone, less, less poisonous. And that's a has a huge benefit for society as a whole. And we we are I think we are fools if we don't apply some thinking and some energy to that set of problems, to the loneliness and the misogyny and the hatred. And it worked to a certain extent with ISIS. It's worked. There are ways to kind of like change how people experience rhetoric and to uh, lower their temperature. And that's something that we ought to do. And it's also something which I think would have more universal support. Not that what you're saying is not that the the legislation that you seek, not that the the, the policy changes you seek aren't smart. I just feel like as a, if you can only concentrate on one thing, concentrate on on the poison. Well, I think you want to change our minds and our moods and I want to change our laws. And I, I find it fascinating that you find that the first part, your solution, is an easier thing to do, to change our minds than to have our elected officials pass a law that most people support. Emily, be, decide, decide just, here. <laughs> no, I, you, I mean, I don't want to have to decide. They both seem like worthy goals. I'm going to add another factor to this conversation, which is the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court, you know, 
uh, now we're talking about a decade ago, said that there is an individual right to bear arms in the Second Amendment. At that point, though, there was this modifying language in Justice Scalia's opinion, probably because of Anthony Kennedy saying, but don't worry, you can still have state regulations that keep guns out of the hands of people who have mental illness, etc., I wonder if the new conservative majority on the Supreme Court does not think that anymore. There is a case on the docket that actually is about a New York regulation, which New York then changed. It was a super strict regulation about even licensed gun owners couldn't take their guns outside of the city to – what are they? What's it called? Where you go to a place to go shooting? It's not a shooting park. Gun, gun, range. gun range. Thank yeah, you. You could only go to a, to gun, a gun range. range. <laughs> to a gun range, and and the city actually changed its regulation. Has been trying to argue to the court this case is moot, but there are going to be other regulations like this that the court is going to hear, and there is certainly an appetite from some of the conservatives on the court to start striking down more regulations. So I wonder if these state by state restrictions that we've looked to. And Mike, you're totally right about the difference between Connecticut and Missouri and how you can see a rise in gun deaths after Missouri loosened gun regulation and a decrease in Connecticut when we tightened it. I wonder if those things are going to start to be legally, constitutionally out of reach. That is a scary thought. Do you, now, wouldn't it be do, great if the Supreme Court took a city with a lower than average gun death and imposed the laws of the rest of the country with the much higher, which the, with the average gun death? That would be very helpful. Do you, either of you, but Emily, maybe to you first, do you sense that guns have become a real cause for the left as opposed to just something which is uh, lightly worn that mm-hmm. emerges after, after horrors such as El Paso and Dayton? Well, there's much more money behind countering the National Rifle Association, which itself is having all these internal scandals and problems. And I think that a lot of people are genuinely more scared, like scared for their kids, seeing this as like something that there's no way to protect themselves against. At the same time, you know, gun owners feel really strongly that this is a matter of their freedom and that this kind of personal liberty is being encroached on and that it's frightening to have the government have so much power to, you know, try to limit you in buying guns or even come and take away your gun. So the salience of that political issue, if you actually, like, are someone who has a gun and feels attached to the identity that comes with that, that does seem to me like it is probably still stronger as a voting impulse than than uh, That's the, the most left. important. Yeah, I think in in social psychology, the, this phenomenon of loss aversion, it's right. people are so scared of losing something that they hold dear. And I think when you think of the gun issue, the loss aversion is on the right. And they, that there's a sense that we have these guns, we have these rights, we have these freedoms, and someone is coming to take them. And that that creates a fear response. It creates and it creates a much stronger <laughs> feeling than yeah. I think even on the left where there is, of course, this this problem. And actually, that makes me think that when it comes to reproductive rights, we're on the cusp of a, actually a turn where the loss aversion that that women especially feel about what the, the threat that is coming for their freedom, their bodily integrity is so powerful that I think that is a that is an issue which has, has until recent years has historically been very much stronger on the right and I think is is about to become so strong on the left because there is such a sense of of uh, bodily integrity under threat. 
Um, well, the but, polls but, but support what you just think. said about abortion. Different topic, but you're right about the polls and how now Democrats for the first time say they care about it more than the Republican voters. That word you used, Emily, salience, that's the most important word, I think, because people blame the NRA and the NRA deserves tons of blame as the boogeyman. But they're really the symbol for how deeply felt uh, the the guns are to those within the gun culture that allowed the NRA to become extremely powerful. And we're seeing differences in salience. We're seeing people on the left prioritizing this issue as much as some of the people on the right. And if a change comes, I think it will come from a reframing of what the loss is and people with guns, you know, most people do not own AR-15s. So people with guns will start to see if there is progress. Some of them will start to see giving up uh, an AR-15 or not having access to, you know, every bump stock or every accoutrement that goes with to make a gun more deadly. We'll see that as not a part of the loss aversion, which is, you know, it hasn't really happened with abortion, right? With abortion, even a procedure that only 2% of the people do, uh, 2% of the people who have abortion have, is deeply felt among other people who are in favor of abortion rights. But I do think if you are going to change the conversation about guns, it's going to happen that way. But the other thing is, you don't really need to change it just looking at the actual percentages of people who favor gun reform. And that's why I think Democratic president, Democratic Senate, even despite the Supreme Court, you could pass really strong legislation. I mean, you right now, tomorrow, if it were in session, you have a strong shot at passing legislation. Uh, if the timing is right, which is to say the timing is wrong because there's another mass slaughter with the right uh, composure of the legislator, there is a legislature, there is a chance something could pass. I want to end actually just going back to my bugaboo and I want Emily, I'm throwing this to you because this is this is my question, which is that that I one of the real pervading themes, and I'm, I actually don't know whether this is true of the El, El Paso uh, suspect, is that Mass, these mass killers are almost always young men, and they are very often misogynists. There's a, there's a strain of, of yes. hatred of and women, fear of women that offenders. runs through it. And domestic violence. And really poor ideas about women. And I think they're just, you know, and Mike was touching on this earlier, this kind of sense of disconnection and lack of, lack of uh, ties into real human warmth and networks. And... I wonder if is there is there is there a way where we can just make it teach young men not to be assholes to give to give them a sense of connection particularly to young women a sense of respectful uh loving and valuable connection that they're not getting is there a way to teach young men that and to to create a society where there is more of that and that they become because young men, young men, detached young men are the most dangerous force the world knows. So how do we minimize that? Or do, is, it just, right. is it just hopeless because the Internet alienates? Well, I mean, there are, there are factors of modern life, the Internet perhaps being foremost among them, that are alienating. But I think what I like about your argument is it's like a public safety urgency behind what we should be trying for anyway, right? Because of course we want young men, just like young women, to be growing up feeling connected, feeling like they're part of the social fabric. And the fact that when they don't feel that way, it becomes so lethal is just one more reason to care about them and try to pull them in. But that, of course, is like 
a very amorphous goal that depends on, you know, more functional families, depends on a society that doesn't just basically like cut out and abandon people who are unlucky and disadvantaged for all kinds of reasons. And that is not the America we live in, especially it feels like right now. Slate Plus members, you get bonus segments on the GabFest, other Slate podcasts. I think your annual membership when you sign up now is just $35. Is that right, Mike Pesca? It is $35. Today on Slate Plus, our bonus segment, we're going to talk about policy issues that we just don't understand no matter how hard we try, no matter how often <laughs> they're explained to us that we are so stupid that we just don't get it. So it's going to be a section about ignorance. I do not know what's going to happen with Pesca. Pesca, I've never heard Pesca. Pesca's not ignorant about anything. anything. He's such an omnivore. He's going to have to come up with, like, you know, some fancy method of crocheting or something. It'll be Bitcoin. No using Bitcoin. I'll tell you what bores me the most. How about that? It's water in the West. We'll take that. (laughs) No, that's not. No, no. It's got to be. It's got to be be ignorance. Ignorance and confusion. Go to Slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today and see if Mike Pesca can indeed be confused. Emily, is he Moscow Mitch or is he Massacre Mitch? I think that Moscow Mitch is the nickname that got to him originally. It came, I think, from Joe Scarborough on MSNBC. And, you know, McConnell, who's positioned himself as a hawk on Russia for years, seemed to really take umbrage at being labeled someone who is an enabler because he won't put any election security legislation on the floor. This seemed to actually, like, rile him in some way. Um, And because election security legislation seems like it should be bipartisan and of paramount importance, um, I'm all for that pressure on him. I'm also fascinated that someone finally came up with an effective nickname for a major Republican figure. I feel like this has been uh, an advantage for Donald Trump since the campaign, that he's good at coming up with these like kind of dopey but effective sticky little nicknames and no one has ever really done one that works for him so the idea that this got under mcconnell's skin is like a step in the direction of evening the nickname playing field oh joy as a society we've got a mean (laughs) nickname this is where we've arrived Yes. In order to be a Moscow Mitch, technically has to be served in a copper mug. And Mm. that's the nicest thing that anyone's ever said about him. I think that the Moscow Mitch thing is good and effective because there's some, oh, perhaps technically slightly unfair truth to it. But then when you quickly go with the Masker Mitch, you're stepping on the effectiveness. So Donald Trump does not go with Sleepy, Sleepy Joe, Sleepy Joe, Sleepy Joe, and then change it to... Droopy Joe, right? right. He's yep. a little consistent. That's how the it. schoolyard bully works. Yeah. Exactly. And I think it was Dana Milbank who first thrust the uh, Moscow charge, although maybe uh, Joe Scarborough hashtagged him. Here's why it's a little unfair. I don't, and, and also vulnerable as a nickname. I don't think that the real problem with Mitch McConnell is that he's easy on Russia per se in terms of foreign policy. And maybe this is why it drives him mad. He thinks he's being unfairly criticized for being a Russia dove when, he, you know, just like any normal uh, politician in America is very suspicious about Russia. What it really is is a critique of how much he doesn't care about election security. And his priority is he doesn't want to have any election reforms because he knows that that would uh, favor the Democrats or at least not give the Republicans the advantages they have. And so, 
that comes in the form of this catch-all nickname of Moscow Mitch, when really the pointed critique is that you are not fairly protecting election systems, and therefore your built-in advantages that Republicans enjoy are being threatened. I think Democrats get into this game with McConnell at their peril. McConnell is the most effective politician of the modern era. He has used and will use every legislative weapon available to him and any other weapon available to him to ruthlessly crush opposition, gain advantage. He'll do it without shame. He has a totally safe seat. He's, I mean, he has a Democratic challenger in Amy McGrath, but he's not going to lose that election and barring some right. unbelievable catastrophe. In Though he Kentucky. is super unpopular. Yeah, Republican. Dominant. Continue on. Nah. He, I yeah. mean, the Republican Party is unbelievably popular in Kentucky. Though. He is the least popular yeah. uh, senator in his home state. He will... I will make a bet, anybody, any odds right now that he will win. And I don't know that it does Democrats any good to demonize him. He doesn't care. And and here's why I don't he think does he does any good. He does care, though. He, well, no, he does care a little bit. He Sorry, I take that back. He cares about the Moscow match. Is that he is – he actually demoralizes Democrats because he is so good at his job. He's so – he is – you're attacking him for being so good at his job. Mm. And Democrats look at him and they they long to have a Moscow Mitch. They want to have a Moscow Mitch, a massacre Mitch, a cocaine Mitch. It would be so great to have it. And the more you draw attention, the more you point, point at him, the more it becomes clear to Democrats that they don't have anywhere near the effectiveness, the ruthlessness, the competence that McConnell has. So I think you you the nice thing about Trump as a target is Trump is not only wicked, but he's also really bad at what he does. He's a very incompetent person. You, the more you point at that, like the the more people can say, yes, things should be better than this. But with McConnell, y- you can you can you can tar him as as being a you know a ruthless asshole who who's you know who's stuffing election security. But the over you know like the conclusion you make is, man, that guy did a really good job and he really stymied us. And I don't I don't think that 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 highlighting the effectiveness of of a, a politician is a good thing for Democrats to do about highlighting the effectiveness of opposition politician. But the unfair thing to Democrats is it's a competence born of nihilism. And since Democrats want government to do something, they can never have that level of quote unquote competence. Yes, that's true. That's a good way to put it. Pelosi is a very, very effective. Yeah, but her competence is born of actually getting things done, not stopping things from getting done. You know, this is interesting. Uh, in in McConnell's first election, he won by uh, for Senate. He won by about five thousand votes. And political science went back. Scientists went back and pretty much proved that if there wasn't massive felon disenfranchisement in Kentucky, he would have lost. So he pretty much owes his entire political career to the fact that he's controlling the levers of elections. And I, if I was a Republican. Some Republicans don't need that because their states are so red. But that is one of the things. It's like why people criticize Roger Goodell. But they criticize him for doing things that upset everyone except the 32 owners of the NFL, his only constituency. So people are criticizing Mitch McConnell for doing these horrible things that keep Republican senators in office and getting elected. In other words, the very things that elevate him within his caucus. Well, the other thing about McConnell, I remember this from Charlie Homan's profile of him in the Times Magazine, he is famously impervious to bad press, right? So when mm-hmm. other people shrink when they're criticized, he just like keeps 
plodding along. He doesn't care. He knows he has a safe seat. He doesn't mind taking the heat for other members of his caucus. That's why I was interested that this particular criticism seemed to get to him. And I don't know, David, I feel like your analysis is kind of doing backflips. Like, it's a nickname that, yeah, it's not entirely fair. It doesn't totally line up. That's Nicknames are often kind of crude in that way. Like, they have a kernel of something in them, but they're not, like, true to the whole identity of the person. And and uh, this election security bill is something that most that is popular, right? I mean, I don't know if they're it's, they're actually polling it, but it just it has a kind of common sense feeling about it that highlights just how obstructionist McConnell's Senate is, and how it is basically just turned into a, a machine for confirming. Trump judges and Trump appointees, which, you know, is fine for a a Senate controlled by members of the president's own party. But the notion that there is almost no bipartisan legislation that McConnell is willing to let through, I think that is politically advantageous for Democrats to highlight. All right. The the problem, though, with the Moscow Mitch uh, label is that if he wants to reverse it, there are plenty of anti-Moscow or anti-Russian things he could do, like sign off on this pipeline bill that has, you know, huge support. But it's not about the reason why the nickname is given, which is election security. So he could go hard against Russia, not do anything about election security, skip past the nickname, and still happily call himself Darth Vader. All right. I want to close this uh, this McConnell segment on these other little meg- mini controversies around him that popped up this week. So there was uh, he, he so he calls himself the Grim Reaper. He happily revels in being called the Grim Reaper. And there was a they at, at some event and Mike, I'm sure you have it at your fingertips. There was uh, a graveyard which had the Green New Deal in it. It had Merrick Garland in it. I think it had Obama. It had Amy McGrath, it had Amy his opponent, McGrath in it. Right. Wasn't it the Fancy Farms? It's a, maybe it's the Fancy Farms, which is some big Kentucky political hoo-ha. And it had this graveyard, and and Amy McGrath was was uh, and her supporters were outraged that that uh, McConnell seemed to be wishing for her death or making sport of her death. Uh, and then there was also a cutout of AOC that some McConnell, very young teenage uh, McConnell supporters were were uh, manhandling in various slightly grotesque ways boy handling boy handling yes it was uh, gross. so emily do you think okay it was gross but does it deserve the three minutes even that we're about to give to it does this is yeah. this a real controversy is it is, why why well the tombstone things i think that was several hours after the el paso and dayton shootings like suggesting that, you know, you want your political opponent dead. I mean, that's I, – I think that verges into, like, really not a good idea. You know, look, these the McConnell supporters who were being gross about the AOC cutout supposedly were high school students. So, like, you know, is McConnell entirely responsible for them? No, of course not. On the other hand, shaming him over them a little bit, like, that seems fair game. I think the AOC stuff is exactly that. Some people wearing T-shirts, touching a cutout in uh, not a nice way, but actually when John Favreau did it with the Hillary Clinton cutout, I hate to also be both gross. sidesy. It was a, a different time, 2008. The only reason that it popped to national attention is that everything that AOC highlights does. And maybe you could criticize her for taking attention off the uh, Moscow Mitch thing. She also did it in the middle of um, a spate of concern about school shooting. 
I would say among our national issues, it's not in the top thousand. Do you think the Grim Reaper graveyard is tasteless and and uh, he should be chastised for how offensive that is? I mean, he did kill the Green... Well, I don't know if he's going to kill the Green New Deal. That's more of a strangled in the crib. No, I don't think it's tasteless. I think that it's not... It's. I don't think it actually endangers anyone. I think it's symbolic speech that's goes back to the days of every Thomas Nass political cartoon. Hope nothing happens to Amy McGrath. I mean, I think that... Sure. I don't know. I guess I'm just increasingly uncomfortable with, like, death and violent images being tied directly to actual people. And I am thinking of Gabby Giffords as I say that. I, you know, like... Look, it'll probably be fine. We are awash in violent, disgusting imagery, et cetera. But it, I don't know. It just seems like, really? But why, wait a minute. Why go there? His, but his critics, okay, I'll stand up for Mitch McConnell. His critics label him as an insult the Grim Reaper. He jujitsus it, turns it around, owns it, and then some of his supporters put on this display. You know, whose fault was injecting the death imagery in the first place? I have a good answer for that. It's no one's fault. It's 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 not optimal uh, legislation, but it's fine in American politics in 2019. This episode of The Gap Fest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos it is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura Frames, in the notes that I have here, says moms like Aura Frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura Frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her Aura Frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an Aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Joaquin Castro, Texas politician, this week tweeted publicly a list of 44 San Antonio residents who maxed out donations to the Trump campaign, their names and their professions. This is, of course, public information when you make a contribution of over, I think, $200 to a federal election, yep. to a federal candidate, You, your name and employment information, probably other information. I don't, is your address also public, although Castro didn't tweet that? Yeah, you could list yeah. a work address but or uh, some other address. It's, yeah. it, it's, it's public and it's available. This, however, has been portrayed as a kind of dirty pool by some of those who were named and presumably potentially shamed by this as a 
taking a new step, a, a form of harassment and endangerment, and that this puts them at risk because they are now being put forward as, as uh, somehow complicit in, in any wrongdoing that the president may have done, and therefore they deserving of some sort of punishment. I mean, who knows? We'll get at whatever it is. Uh, Castro is the brother of the presidential candidate, Julian, which was also a source of confusion. A lot of people thought that it was the candidate himself, the presidential candidate, who'd done it. Emily, this information is public. It is searchable. It is easily findable. Is it therefore okay and right and a perfectly decent political tactic for Joaquin Castro to share it? So I feel incredibly strongly about how important it is that this information is public and disclosed. I mean, we have a lot of dark money sloshing into politics through these so-called, I hate to even use this word, but these quote, social welfare organizations, effectively nonprofits that can't directly tell you who to vote for, but can do a lot of work to soften the, the ground for whoever they're supporting. And then, of course, there are super PACs, which have some disclosure rules, but also that can get a little muddy in terms of actually understanding who's behind them. So these disclosure laws, which we have held onto when you give a gift directly to a candidate, are really important. I also think it it's this interesting um, tension between the importance of disclosure and yet the problem of using like the internet, you know, in this case, Joaquin Castro's Twitter account to broadcast the people's identities who think of themselves effectively as private citizens. And I'm kind of torn about it because I think when you take information that previously people had to go look for and you surface it like this, it is possible that that's going to come with some kind of like harassment. On the other hand, if you're giving $2,800 or maxing out for Donald Trump right now, why not stand behind that? Like, why are people feeling ashamed of that and, like, it's something that they don't want to be associated with? If you are giving money to a political candidate, then you should be able to articulate why you support that person, why you think that's, like, a perfectly legitimate choice to be making. Well, I from the interviews that were done with the people who were named – uh, granted, it's a self-selecting pool of those who will say, yeah, I'll talk to you on the record. But they were standing by it. They were saying, if anything, I'm going to – this redoubles my support. I heard one guy – I'm going to give some dark money now. Yeah. Uh, I'm exactly where you are, that there it definitely should be public. And yet at the same time, there is an irresponsibility to it. I do – it's easier for me to jump to the people who immediately talk about weaponized it. The people on the right who immediately weaponized it is, oh my God, he's trying to get these people killed. I'm not sure that that was exactly his motivation. In fact, I'm sure it wasn't exactly his motivation, but I think it bears questioning. So what was his motivation? Name him, shame him, but what form should the shame take? That the people well, of San like, Antonio know that their neighbors, and by neighbors I mean people who live in the gated communities, voted for and supported Trump. Should the shame take uh, the form of a boycott? If so, you know, a lot of those business owners are doing what business owners do, uh, supporting the Republican. And probably if there was a boycott, it would hurt tons of their Democratic supporting and maybe vulnerable employees. And I'm not sure if you really sat down with Julian the day he tweeted this or retweeted it out. And you were his chief of staff and you said, let's go through it, pros and cons. If he is a responsible politician, wouldn't have said, yeah, I'm going to hold off on this. 
Yeah, I was thinking about tactics too. I mean, I actually feel like boycotts are legit in this instance, and they're a form of of social shaming that actually like hit someone in their pocketbook and could make a difference. And yes, there is always collateral damage from boycotts, but that doesn't mean that they are an illegitimate political tool. I mean, I don't think like personally harassing people or obviously doing anything scary to them is a, a supportable legitimate goal and Castro immediately distanced himself from anything like that. But this notion that like you know, you live in a community with a large immigrant um, Latino population and you're supporting someone who is racist, is saying these inflammatory, violent-producing things. I mean, especially with the heat turned up right now, that seems like a legitimate thing to hold people to account for. I I want to make a couple of points here. One is uh, I agree with you, Emily, about boycotts, although I think where boycotts are, are more warranted is in the case of, for example, Steve Ross, this uh, – this huge um, mega gazillionaire who owns or is the majority owner of SoulCycle, Equinox yeah. Gym, he owns Reliant and, and Pizza, Reliant owns those, yeah. uh, and the Miami Dolphins, and he and it's he's not merely a donor; he's holding a gigantic fundraiser for President Trump at his Hamptons home, two hundred fifty thousand uh, dollars a plate, or not? You can give up to two hundred fifty thousand dollars for as part of this, <laughs> and that's a guy. That's a case where. This guy isn't just merely a donor. He's like really flamboyantly going out of his way to support the president and and make a big deal out of it. And and by all means, like don't go to Equinox Gyms, don't go to Soul Cycle, and don't go to Ann Pizza and and feel slightly better about yourself. That seems that really seems worth it. I think in the case of you know local business local business owner who has made a contribution to the president, yeah, maybe. Maybe that person, maybe a person who owns the chain of barbecue restaurants, it should be known and that and people should decide. I think the the random sort of random neurologist who has made a donation isn't particularly a public figure that they have, they're not serving. Castro did not serve people well by suggesting that 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 person be subject to a boycott or that person be really publicly shamed. It's, it's the, the tactic there is. It's a, it's a, it's an overkill. So that's one one point. I think that that the boycott thing is warranted, but you have to choose your target and choose it for somebody who really deserves it. That's one. The second thing is, I just want to go. There's been this phenomenon in recent years of of uh, mugshots being published. So if you Google almost anybody, uh, it used to be. This, I think this is less true now, but it used to be two yes. or three years ago. You Google almost anybody, you turn up maybe ha- halfway down a Google image search, there will be a ton of mugshots of that person or the person with that name. And it was a, it's a thing because these are publicly available records. And it suddenly became extremely easy for people's criminal histories to be known with just a one search. And I always found that so unsettling and disturbing, not because they sh- these records shouldn't be public. Of course they should be public, but in general, People who have committed crimes are overpunished in this country, and the, to have such prejudicial information out there to to make it impossible for people to to exist without the first thing that known about them being that they were once arrested or that they once you know committed a crime seems like very very damaging. And I feel a little bit the same way with with this Castro situation, which is that obviously this is an act of free speech and and public contribution these people have made. It's a, pub, a statement about their political beliefs. And that should be publicly known. It should be searchable. People should be able to do things with it. You should be able to, if you're a reporter, to call to call up one of these donors and say, hey, why'd you do it? But but the kind of random 
uh, sort of spraying out of that information to a huge audience without a kind of sense of, of strategy behind it seems like a bad, a bad use. And it just it also opens up a whole new thing that people will now feel that's safe to do, that it's another norm that's been bent or broken. Yeah. Joaquin Castro's best defenses were things like it's legitimate and it's defensible, but I haven't heard him articulate it's optimal. This is the what we should be doing. And some of the proof of that is that his like-minded members of Congress didn't do the same thing in their district. And also, I mean, this is the Steve Ross point is a correct one. Someone who is actively raising money for the guy versus a normal course of doing business. Some of these Trump donors gave everything they could to Democrats, too. Sometimes if you're a major developer or business person and this gets more at the rot of our system, you donate to everyone to grease the wheels and, you know, do what you want. You know, everyone has their own conscience and SoulCycle is some good competitors in Orange Theory or whatever, and maybe they're all for the progressives. But I think we're a little too hair-trigger when it comes, or some people are a little too hair-trigger when it comes to, you donated to uh, the Republican candidate, therefore you deserve a boycott, and everyone who works for you deserves to uh, suffer a little bit. Have we even really seen these boycotts be effective? I feel like in general, we just go around in our like capitalist apathy and like you know, handering for a moment, and there aren't really any consequences. Also, can we go back to the mugshots for a minute? Because I feel like that's a, I mean, I am also unsettled and disturbed by that, but it's a different situation, right? We're talking about the state power to make an arrest, which is different from being convicted, right? You don't know whether those people actually did what they've been accused of doing versus like the choice that people make as individuals to give money to someone. And you have a law governing that, making that public. This new use case is one that we should just be alert. We should be alert that it's a new use case. It isn't how the people who authored these laws thought it was going to be used. And these laws were passed with the premise not that that these mugshots or even that these political donations would be would be alerted to millions and millions of people. But they were passed with the idea that this should be publicly available just so we keep records, just so that, you know, the free press can investigate it, just so that we can if there's cases of corruption, we can we can you know, get have a better track of it, not so that it will be immediately broadcast to lots of people. And we should be, therefore, cautious about it. I mean, t- going back to guns, they, there was that Connecticut case where a newspaper published the addresses or it was a searchable database online of everyone who owned a gun in the state. Right. And that's legal people and probably crazy, pop- I bet. Sure. And I think there was a legitimacy to it. Now they know I have this valuable thing and perhaps I can be either targeted by anti-gun owners or people who want to steal my gun. There is... There is a responsibility and there is the law. It is important to say that what Joaquin Castro did wasn't dox anyone. That's an important distinction because doxing is when you get a private citizen's non-published information. But still, I I mean, it's different from a mugshot because of, among other things, the agency of the person who is being publicized. But I also think if you're going to make the argument that political donation is speech, it can't also be anonymity at the same time. No, that's true. It can't be anonymity. But it's, does that mean that this is a great tactic or this is a useful thing to do? When the Supreme Court weighed in on this a few years ago, there was a challenge brought by supporters of California's ban on gay marriage who had signed the 
um, petition to get that ban onto the ballot. They wanted their names to be private. And the Supreme Court, it was an eight to one decision, said no. And there's this great rhetoric from um, Justice Scalia about how trying to keep this information anonymous is not exactly like living in the home of the brave. The dissenter in that case is Clarence Thomas. And I think there is some who thinks there's no right to disclosure really like at all in election law. And I think there are these interesting questions about now that the court's conservative coalition has shifted, whether that is more, there could be more support for that Thomas position at this point, sort of similar to the cautionary note I was striking on uh, the Second Amendment. I do not want to let the segment pass without noting that there has been so much harassment from the right of anti-Trump Republicans, of reporters, of of anti-Trump protesters, left-wing politicians. So there is a certain amount of rich hypocrisy for some on the right to be saying, oh, this is a form of harassment that is intolerable when there has been so much extremely aggressive, often violent, rhetorically violent harassment. The, the smelling salts quality of this criticism on the right is very frustrating given how much nastiness and viciousness there has been unleashed on, on uh, Trump critics. Fainting couch, yes. smelling salt, that's what you mean? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Let's go to cocktail chatter. When you're trying to hide out in a bar, not be doxxed, not have your information made publicly available by any congressperson from Texas or anyone else, and you're sipping anonymously at a drink, what will you be chattering about, Mike Pesca? So when I am uh, anonymous, anonymously sipping my uh, Moscow mule in a non-approved, non-copper cup, perhaps a brass mug or a, I don't know, somewhat tarnished iron chalice, I shall think of what the Daily Coast is doing. So the Daily Coast has this um, little experiment, this little um, uh, crowdsourced uh, exercise in slightly improving our democracy. And they looked at the United Kingdom and they noted that the parliamentary constituencies there all have great names. You've, you've seen this if you watched Brexit results right. come in, right? The Vale of Glamorgan, the Forest of Dean, you know, the Fountains of Wayne. Okay, that would be a New Jersey one. And they said, why can't we have this in the United States? Let us like, who knows what the hell California's 27th is? That doesn't make sense. So they said, let's name all of our congressional oh, districts. Great idea. Some are pretty obvious, like Alaska's Alaska, right? <laughs> Delaware, that, that's an easy one. But then other ones. But Alaska, why isn't the last frontier? Oh, I, re- I represent the last frontier. That would be good. And maybe they'd think you were a senator from Star Trek. But I, let's not get extra uh, confusing. That's like the final uh, <laughs> frontier. <laughs> right. But wait, what is what is Louisiana? That is, uh, the there's a frontier thing there, too. Isn't there a vacation what? paradise and a... In Louisiana? Louisiana I think Louisiana has a frontier nickname, Frontier of Mardi Gras. Frontier of being drunk. No, they have two nicknames. There's the Pelican State and the... The sportsman's paradise. Okay, so it's not a frontier. <laughs> anyway, so I went through a few congressional districts, and some are going to be hard to name. So before I start 
labeling, and I welcome GabFest listeners to give a suggestion maybe for theirs. I have a couple ideas of the namings. Uh, some are pretty easy. You know, all of almost all of Minneapolis is Ilan Omar. Fine. But what about Ohio's 5th Congressional District. This includes parts of Defiance and Fulton and Hancock and Hardin. Who the hell knows what that is? And then I realized, oh, this is where the movie Heathers took place. That's very informative of the kind of people who might live in and vote for Ohio's 5th. So that should be the Heathers District. Where I come from, Peter King is the representative and it's a part of Long Island that's a little blue collar. What describes that? And I thought of a famous historic figure that if you associate it with the New York congressional district that Peter King serves, that would be the Buttafuoco district. <laughs> They're up, up in, uh, to the north of where I live, Tom Swazi from Glen Cove, he would represent West Egg, which is where Gatsby lived. Gatsby. Benny Thompson. Yes. Gatsby's maybe the better name. Benny Thompson, uh, could be just Mississippi Delta, Cradle of the Blues, Cedric Richmond of Louisiana. They might not like this name, but he's he would be the representative from Cancer Alley. And, you know, it's not. There's some of Cancer Alley that's outside of his district. And then sometimes you could just name it after. Oh, a really useful one is this guy, Kenny Marchant from Texas. And, you know, he's a representative to Texas, but where from Texas? He would be the representative from Exxon because that's where uh, Exxon's headquarters is in Irving, Texas. And then sometimes you could just name a district after a famous person who served there. So when Pelosi leaves, whoever takes over that district in San Francisco should serve the Pelosi district. But this is, I think, really informative. Ohio 13th. What does that mean? It's the Trafficant District. And if I told you, oh, did you know Tim Ryan serves in the Trafficant District? That would be, I think, meaningful. I think you're, Wait, no. I, I need to be reminded who Trafficant is. I apologize. Yeah, I don't Jim think Traf- I think you're such a political insider. I, shouldn't it be much more about the but this is the, the city away. or this is the, the geographical feature? Like, That's the thing that people I could are be from Philly Cheesesteak District or my home district could be that <laughs> district. Though I, there's probably actually we redistricted, so maybe there's a part of South Philly. You're that in the suburbs. That more. You're Aren't you in like? Aren't you like the main line? The or main line. No, I did not grow up in the main line. I grew up in Germantown and East Falls, inside Philadelphia. It's like crucial to my identity that you understand that. Are are both Genos and Pats in your district? Because if not, it's not the Philly Cheesesteak District. I don't think they're there. Any, not, yeah, I've been to Emily's childhood home. There are no cheesesteak. Genos is gone. That's not Anywhere. true. There yeah. is a Pats, but I, but like I said, we redistricted, so I can't remember where the boundaries are anymore. Not the Pats. <laughs> a Pats. All right, Emily, what is your chatter? Um, I was thinking a lot about Toni Morrison this week, the amazing novelist who died at the age of eighty-eight, and I was. As I was reading various appreciations of her, um, for example, by Wesley Morris at the Times and Doreen St. Felix at The New Yorker, I was struck by how many people read her as a kid. I mean, Doreen and Wesley both describe reading her at 11, um, which I thought was kind of amazing. I read Morrison for the first time in middle school. I remember being assigned The Bluest Eye and Sula and then finding Song of Solomon and Beloved a little later on my own. And I was just thinking about what an important argument this is for an expanded canon that goes beyond, you know, the 19th century into the 20th and 21st centuries that embraces 
writers of all different walks of life, colors, ethnicities, etc. Like there is for me almost no writer who's been more influential in my just like growing up and thinking than Toni Morrison. And it sounds like that's true for a number of people. And I'm so glad I had teachers who assigned her to me in middle school. Wouldn't you say that, in fact, Toni Morrison has joined the canon? My sense is that very much. That's Absolutely. Yes. That is a success for the canon and many other other people, too. It just struck me. I I think, yeah, for a variety of reasons, I've been thinking about the canon this week. Uh, Two quick uh, chatters for me. First of all, I'm just almost done with a wonderful novel called Overstory by Richard Powers. I don't know if you guys have heard of it. Oh, my God. That's so funny. I just started reading that. That is so weird because it, it's not new. It really benefits. Yeah, it's, it's maybe a couple of years old. I think it won the National Book Award or the Pulitzer or something. Yes. Uh, it's a story about trees. Uh, it's a novel about trees. It's a novel about a bunch of different people who are seemingly disconnected, but then all have a relationship to trees and forests. And it's a story about forests and trees. And it is absolutely magical and they'll just stick with it if it's, it starts in a kind of way that's kind of confusing i didn't realize that it was all going to come together it all comes together in a way that's incredible so um at the root it comes yeah it i mean that's what out. it's about that's what it's about it's like literally about how we're we're rooted together and you don't even realize how rooted together you are uh it's a wonderful book and then i also just some someone pointed me one of my colleagues um referenced something which i remember seeing four or five years ago uh, and it's so funny, and I, it's very hard to explain, so I'm not going to really explain it. I'm just going to urge you to go see it. Virginia Heffernan, host of uh, Trumpcast, actually. Is Virginia yes. host of Trumpcast? Yes, she is. And Paul Ford, four years ago, uh, they don't didn't know each other, but they ended up in email exchange, and the email exchange was they just trying to create dread in each other. Yes. So it's a series of email messages which are just designed to make the other person feel anxious, and they're so incredibly funny. It is one of the funniest things you will ever read, especially if you have any connection to journalism or or any know any writers. Uh, it is it's really really funny. So it's on. So wait, medium, is this a book or a set of posts somewhere or what is? No, it it's just a it's set of using email. the form of email yeah, just, in it in in a way that should be used more often as like a chance to perform. Yeah, it's it's, great. it's about you know it's maybe it's an email chain that's maybe fifty emails long, and it's it's republished on on Medium as an article, and it's called Just Checking In, um, which is also one of those. Do you remember that awesome uh, Slate series called The the Underminer that's like 10 or 12 years old? Wasn't Virginia involved in that, too? That was Virginia. That was Virginia. I just feel like there's a theme here. That is also super hilarious. (laughs) Yes. Well, this is very much in the spirit of The Underminer. Anyway, it's uh, Virginia Heffern and Paul Ford on Medium. It's called Just Checking In. I can't – I'm not going to read any excerpts because it just just lends itself to being read. Um, And, of course, listeners, you are sending us wonderful chatters. Uh, You continue to send us wonderful chatters. They're about – half a dozen that we could have chattered about today uh, that you tweeted to us at at Slate Gabfest. Please keep them coming. And today I'm going to call out one from Paul Chaffee at Paul Chaffee or Chaffee perhaps, uh, which is a, a Washington Post article about a gerrymandering font. And did you see this, Mike? Yes. It's, someone, it seems hard to use in practice, but it is so someone, someone took a bunch of congressional districts, which vaguely resemble letters, <laughs> and made a font out of it. So, you can, you know, the B is this district which sort of, you know, meanders around. That, so it looks like a capital B. And there, you know, the Z, there's the districts that, you know, go this way, then come back, and then go back the other way. It's 
very, very funny visual representation of how crazy gerrymandering is. And uh, this is a very clever person who made it. So check out this gerrymandering font was made to prove a point about partisan districts in the Washington Post. That is our show for today. The Political Gap Fest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. Gabriel Roth is editorial director of Slate Podcast. June Thomas is managing producer of Slate Podcast. You should follow us on Twitter at, at @SlateGabFest and tweet chatter at us. And you should come to our show in St. Paul, Minnesota, on September 18th. Go to slate.com/live. We'll be at the Fitzgerald Theater. Come join us at that show. For Emily Bazelon and the delightful Mike Pesca, host of The Gist, listen to The Gist. You can get Pesca every single day. Can you imagine what can a pleasure that would be? Yes. Or just dip in occasionally I to am, habituate yourself. <laughs> I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We will talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? How are things? What's been going on? Good week. You like John Dickerson on vacation? Are you like Mike Pesca, not on vacation, but doubling up your podcasts? <laughs> Are you like Emily Bazelon, back from vacation? Are you still on vacation? No, you're back from vacation. No, I'm back, back although vacation. I get to go back to Maine this weekend. Hallelujah. Or you like David Plotz, about to go on vacation today. So it's there's all states of vacation or non-vacationists. Anyway, so it goes. Uh, the topic for today is a topic of ignorance and stupidity and confusion, which is what is the public policy issue that we omnicompetent, omni, uh, om, omnivorous, uh, omnicapable, what's it when you know everything? Omniscient? <laughs> Gabfest host. Is that what you consider? You cannot understand. You, you, you put yourself in the omni cul-de-sac and you couldn't get, I couldn't get that omniscient. I couldn't, I couldn't remember the key word. Right. Uh, what is it that the what is the public policy issue or issues that we just simply cannot understand, no matter how hard we try, even if, or maybe we just can't bring ourselves to try so hard because it's really boring. And I would I I'm just to set this up. I, I'll I'll happily give my example in a minute. I find this is not a public policy issue. It's Bitcoin. Like no matter how often anyone explains huh. anyone explains the blockchain to me, Bitcoin, Ethereum, no matter how often that happens, I immediately forget it. I could explain it, you know, in the 12 seconds after it's been explained to me, I could explain it. But after that, I just. But the thing about Bitcoin is you really have to understand blockchain to just know that, like, there's this currency and it's not connected to a government. But I feel like that's all I have to know about Bitcoin. What? Well, luckily, they've invented a bunch of synonyms. So if you don't understand Bitcoin, you could say, well, it's blockchain. If you don't understand blockchain, you say, it's Ethereum. And then you're out of but the what it, what's the thing that you don't understand that actually matters here? Oh like, my God, you know stop, what Bitcoin stop. is. It's the block. I think I don't understand what the blockchain is. And you know what? If anybody tweets at me or emails me <laughs> an explanation, they, I will, I will Falling ban them. Falling on deaf ears. I will name and shame new. You will be name and shamed next week. I don't want to know what the explanation but is. But don't you like knowing that Estonia, uh, their medical system is much more efficient because of the blockchain? Because of Bitcoin? Yeah, they because pay of blockchain. They pay Bitcoin? You go into blockchain a doctor in Estonia, blockchain. You Stop go, it. You love the blockchain in Estonia. I'm sure it's important and interesting. Wait, is, is this it. true? I like this idea. Oh, yeah. And you oh. go into a doctor. They know everything about your medical history, and it's extremely safe, and it's all because of, I think, uh, Bitcoin. No, the blockchain. All right. So <laughs> that, that, is, uh, that is the setup. That is not a public policy issue. That is Bitcoin. Anyway, whew.
I'm already I'm already exhausted. What is the public policy issue? Uh, who who wants to go first? I've got one. Emily, do you have one? Well, I there are parts of like basic economics that I have to constantly remind myself of. Like when the Federal Reserve lowered the interest rate last week, I have to like screw up my whole face for a moment and remind myself what the relationship between interest rates and investment and employment is. I can get there, but it really makes me wish I had just taken economics in college in some way, shape, or fashion so that it would just like be in my brain in some nice, easy way. And I find that trade deficits are like another layer of this where every time I have to laboriously talk to myself about what a trade deficit is and how it works and what the relationship with tariffs are. Ooh, can I go to add on that? I, that's that is please that is trade deficit, <laughs> trade deficit plus currency. Uh huh. Yes. Like current, what the relationship with is with currency and strong dollar, weak dollar. Oh my god, that one kills me. Really? Yeah. If take, you have a weak dollar, don't, don't oh, start. Don't start with and me. You no, invested in the don't block. start with me. <laughs> wait, wait. If you, if your dollar is no, weak, we're not going to explain it. If when you no, go, go to ahead. England it's fine and to things, okay, it. ignore him. If when you go to England and things are super expensive because then the pound, the euro is strong against the dollar, that means that if you're trying to export something to get an English person to buy, you're, you have an advantage. It's cheap for them. So a, a weak currency in your own place is good for exports. Just think about yourself traveling. Yeah. And if you were trying to sell stuff that. to those people, yeah. sorry. But then when you talk about oh, China's a currency manipulator, like uh-huh. what is exactly does that mean? Oh, how do they do it? I don't know that. Any no, it, but the right. question of like currency if they and trade weaken the renminbi or whatever it's called versus prop well, it up also, artificially. that's the other thing. The two names for the they Chinese have two currencies also. <laughs> the, the and is it the yuan, the yuan? Yeah, what's up yeah. with that? I'm with the you on two that. currencies. Yeah, it's, oh my god, we're, we've already we just started. I'm already completely anxious and sweating and confused. Keep going. Is that is that your one, Emily? That's Those one. are my main. All of my deep insecurities go back to economics. Effectively, Mike, it's your turn. Do you have anything out there? I could help. I could help you with the trade deficit to know to just give you this one piece of information. Not, no, give your show. Yes, your he can give okay. hints. Okay, and then he'll tell us the thing he doesn't know. You're right. Stop cutting the him deal off. with the trade deficit is don't worry about it. it. Really doesn't matter. Oh my god, that's the thing. You, okay. That's the thing you need to know. That is like splash, and is that true that's of like Superman is it? Yeah, it's Superman. <laughs> don't worry. Don't worry, little lady. Well, I got this. <laughs> no, no I it's not because I'm saying, worried about it. I shouldn't worry my pretty little head. It's right. like nobody should worry. Right. Well, th- of course, there comes times when it's really bad. But it's one of those things that maybe seems bad if you're an American, if someone trades more with you. GabFest fans, that was just a teaser. To hear the rest of our Slate Plus conversation, go to slate.com slash Plus to become a Slate Plus member today. Hi, GabFest fans. It's Emily Bazelon here. If you have read my new book or listened to my podcast, Charged, I am super grateful to you. You might also want to check out the extra interviews I did that go deeper into the issues of the criminal justice system in the United States. I talked to Scott Heckinger, Insha Rahman, Adam Foss, and other progressive thinkers in criminal justice about issues like public defenders, parole, probation, and how bail bond companies work. 
You can also hear a conversation I had with Stacey Abrams at the New York Public Library. Super grateful to Stacey for doing that with me. I learned so much from doing these interviews, and they really provide a fuller picture of the criminal justice system in this country. You can check them out at Slate Plus. And to start listening now, become a Slate Plus member at slate.com slash charged. It's $35 for the first year. You'll get additional podcast bonuses and an ad-free feed. Visit slate.com slash charged to learn more. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.